Do you want to hear something really cynical? What's that? My three rules of real estate, when people ask me, what are the three rules of real estate? This is going to sound really bad, but this is what I've learned in 40 years. Everybody lies. Everybody lies. Everybody lies. And the worst lie is when you lie to yourself because you try to convince yourself that something that isn't right is right. Is right. Yeah. And that's where you're gambling and where you're making the mistake. And so what I'm trying to do, I think the risk off and the, the whole concept of not gambling is just not lying to yourself and knowing who you are. Yo, yo, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Science of Flipping podcast. I am your host. Very excited to have a guest on today. Before we get to my guest, as always, this episode is brought to you by my main sponsor, MinutePages.com. They are the only place you need to be going as a real estate investor for your professional website. If you want to 10x your lead flow, you need to make sure you have a Minute Pages website. Go to MinutePages.com now to get yours. All right, everybody, welcome back to the episode. I have a colleague on this episode who him and I have been talking a little bit about some interesting topics about what's the difference between gambling versus real estate investing. Uh, this gentleman has over 30 years of experience, has built an incredible portfolio. Uh, Joel Friedland, how are you, my friend? Doing great. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. I uh, appreciate you coming on to drop some wisdom, I like to call it. Um, there's a lot of listeners who may be 30 minutes into this game. Uh, and so love having someone on that has seen a lot more than even I have. Uh, I've been in this 15 years. You've doubled that. You've seen more recessions, the great recession and so on and so forth. And we are definitely in a time of change as you and I were just discussing, but why don't we start with this? Why don't we introduce you? I'll allow you to do it. Give everyone some understanding of who you are what you've done, what you've seen, what you've gone through, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to be in real estate and I was looking for a job and I thought I was going to be in residential real estate. I thought I'd be in multifamily or apartments or something like that. And a very close friend of mine said, I have a buddy who owns an industrial real estate company. Would you consider talking to him about a job? I said, yeah, sure. So I called this guy. I never met him. His name was Milt Podolsky. Uh, at the time, he was 63, which is exactly how old I am now. I keep comparing myself to my original mentor and like, oh, my God, I'm the age that he was because I've been doing this for 40 years. And I went in and I met with him and he said, so uh, do you uh, take no for an answer? And I said, I said, no, no, I, I try to get what I want by convincing people and persuading people. He said, okay, you're hired. He says, now we're in the middle of a recession. It was 1981, interest rates were 17%. And he said, I've got about 15 empty buildings out of the 84 that my family owns. He said, you're gonna go door to door and you're gonna find me tenants. So I went into industrial parks, not knowing anything and I started going from one company to another. I'd walk in the door and there'd be a receptionist and I'd have to figure out what to say. So I'd say, 
hey, uh, we have a building down the street that we'd like to lease. Would you consider moving? And she'd say, we're not moving. She re the receptionist would rarely know what, what they were talking about. Right. So I'd say, so who's the owner of the company? I'd like to talk to the owner. And someone would come out and invariably they'd say, come on back to my office, let's talk. And I would sit with them and try to convince them that if they were ready to grow their business, uh, let's go, let's take a look at our building down the street. But at that time, what they would say to me was, hey, kid, don't you know we're in a recession? We're just barely holding on. We're not doing anything. We're on hold. So during recessions, what happens to investment real estate and, and sort of my experience of going through four cycles is people go on hold. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, you and I run different models and it's really good for my audience to hear this, right? Because there's so much similarity. Everyone's trying to figure out what they want to do. Do they want to wholesale? Do they want to flip? Do they want to multi-units? Do they want to be the next Grant Cardone and go, you know, 2,000, 20,000 doors? Do they want to be you and go and get, you know, 300 million worth of industrial? So everyone's trying to decide, but there's similarities amongst all of it, right? One, financing, lending, uh, two, syndicating, three, uh, ups and downs, right? And so when my world of single family homes, multi-units, uh, in this time, there is a lot of people on hold. And I actually just did a podcast prior to this one talking about the one thing I know about me and most is we know when everyone else is on hold is when I want to take market share. Right. Because the people that would typically be trying to acquire the same asset that I want to acquire, specifically even this time of year, December, they're on vacation. I literally have a good friend of mine does very well every year investing. He's done. He literally called me. He's like, hey, me and my wife are done for the year. We're like, we're on, literally he's in bail right now and the whole thing. God bless him. That's what we do it for, 100%. But now I'm like, let me pour a little bit more gas on my fire right now because he's no longer in the game for the next two and a half weeks, right? Yeah. So I'm glad that you bring that up is because I think a lot of people need to understand. You've seen four of these things. I've seen two. And it is most common for people to freeze right? To hold tight, to hang in there and just see what happens. What's your best advice to that? Well, okay. So here's an interesting uh, part of my background. I ran a real estate brokerage company. When, when I worked for this Milt Podolsky, I was there for 10 years and it was a family with, where he was the dad. There was a, two sons and a daughter. And after 10 years, when I realized that they weren't going to adopt me and I wanted to be a partner in, in the business, I went and started my own business. And over the last 30 years, I have mentored about 70 uh, brokers who many of them have become buyers and, and owners of real estate. Mm. And the thing that I've learned is that um, there's no wrong time to be a buyer. There's a wrong time to buy the wrong property. So for me, it all comes down to due diligence. If you look at a property and you know the market, and you figure out what, what it's worth and what you think the market's doing and what you think the property is going to do, even in the, in the, in the <clears> most <throat> crazy bubble, there are still deals. It's just harder to find them. So what happens is we just dig in more. And what I've watched is um, I'd say 20 of these people that, that I've mentored have become incredibly successful. They're all multimillionaires. The other 50 are gone. They never made it in the business. 
Mm. And I've watched these 20 and they're still buying things today, even though I find it to be the most difficult market I've ever seen to buy properties. The, the values are high and there's a gap between what a seller thinks it's worth today and what I'm willing to buy. Or what, my, my pricing level is, is like three years ago. And I keep thinking, if somebody paid $2 million for a building and they want to sell it to me for $3 million, I'm looking at the next year, all these predictions of a recession and rates going up. It scares me. So yeah. I really have to be sure of the property. That's the key to it. Yeah. And you're in just for clarity purposes, just to give a little more feedback of, of your strength. You are much more in the industrial space than the single family home space. Not to say you've not done single family homes, just that is really where you've built your massive amount of wealth. I bring that to, to light. Uh, for you to a, talk a little bit more about that. I think my audience has heard me enough with single family homes. But, but also, again, I want to draw that parallel. Without me really defining that he was in the industrial space, most of you watching this either at justincolby.tv or listening to this on iTunes would have thought he was talking about our residential space. He's saying the same things, using the same language, drawing the same analogies, right? It's, it's quite literally the same. There's just a function of how you utilize that asset, right? How are you going to exit it? Why are you going to acquire it? And then how are you going to exit it? And so I just really wanted to highlight the fact that he's actually in a different asset space typically, but it resonates with all of us, including me, right? As I'm buying, I just closed on another rental and Dayton, Ohio. Great the town. Vacation, the vacation capital of the world. Just kidding. <laughs> That's a great but, town. You know, great town for especially a buy and hold. You're not going to see a lot of appreciation. You're not going to see a lot of depreciation, or I guess depreciation for me, but you're not going to see a big fall uh, when the market shifts. Great for that, right? And so let me ask you, just because you did say it's a great town, any particular reason you, you like that town? Is it more personal or for business or what? So- my investors are um, very wealthy people for the most part. Everybody's accredited. I've been doing this for a long time. So I have a lot of family offices. I have a lot of, I have a few billionaires and multimillionaires who invest with me and, and people invest anywhere between say 25,000 if they're just getting started to let's say a million dollars per deal. And one of my biggest investors is a family, uh, two sisters uh, who are in their seventies and eighties. And they called me one day and they said, we need you to go look at an industrial building in Dayton that we own. And I said, okay. So I drove from Chicago to Dayton as a favor to them. And I said, wow, it's right on the highway. It's right on 70. Isn't that the, the main road there? And I, I looked at this building. I said, it's fantastic. You should keep it forever because it's always going to be a good building. So I, I drive around in industrial parks. You know, every town has an industrial park. Big cities have big ones, little cities. It's usually called industrial drive. And I, I focus on small buildings, under a million dollars, $3 million. Every town has them. And Dayton has a nice little industrial park. And that's how I know it, because I did a favor for one of my investors. Yeah. yeah. And I like it for why you gave the same. Again, I keep drawing these parallels because it's important. You told those sisters to keep that building because it'll be a good building forever. It's the same reason why I bought this house. Solid house. It'll be a great house forever, right? It'll just be a great rental area, great market. I'd call it a B minus neighborhood. 
perfect, you know, price point. So I say that again, to kind of bring up this analogy of like, everyone's trying to decide what vertical they want to be in what you know, whether again, it's the Grant Cardone, I've spent a lot of time with Grant recently. Uh, he continues to impress upon me doing a 200 unit deals as easy as doing a single family deal. Easier telling say what it's easier, it's easier. See, I just again being and I keep pushing back on him like, yeah, but I've it's just a single house. It's 125 grand. Yours is 125 million, right? And he's like, dude, it's just, it's just extra zeros. Everything else is the same. Um, and so obviously you're echoing this. Uh, but yeah, again, I, I like I like uh, Midwestern towns. The Midwest is great because the cap rates, if you're looking at that, are much better here than they are in New York and New Jersey and in California, where you're seeing ridiculously low cap rates. I could my my investors and I could not tolerate the cap rates that they're no. they're getting out there. And and it's so I did the vast majority of my career spent in Phoenix. And as a whole, Phoenix is an incredible, incredible city for investing, right? Uh, there's all these different qualifiers for the major sports teams to the growth opportunity to the industries that are coming there, et cetera, right? Um, but man, trying to buy a rental there over the last two years. Versus buying a rental, I bought nine in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. Um, like, it's just not even comparable relative to the return on your investment, right? Whether you want to use cap rate, which is more commercial and industrial used or a cash on cash return, like, you just can't beat it. Now, would I rather a property in Phoenix? Mostly, yeah, there's a lot more growth. And over the time, there will be a lot more appreciation. But when you're just talking about a good, solid, safe investment that is safe as you can get it. The Midwest, what I even call um, the Sun Belt states, right? Uh, I just love it. You know, the, rust, the Rust Belt states. The Rust Belt states. Right. Sun, yeah, there you go. Every everybody's clamoring to be in the Sun Belt, except for us. Right. Right. <laughs> there's an so opening. There's an opening in the Midwest. It's a great place. It and there is. Like, I'll give you an example. I was looking at a duplex today. I think the seller wanted eighty-five thousand in Cleveland, Ohio. It's currently, currently, without any improvements, renting for fourteen hundred a month. I mean, you just don't find that, and you know, anywhere. anywhere. Yeah, try San Francisco. <laughs> no, not a chance. Right, yeah, you're okay. not, you're not getting a parking spot on the street for eighty five thousand dollars a year. Right. You know. So, um, so let's dive in a little bit about your expertise and what you've been able to do, which I think is so incredible, and the opportunity that this this real estate market poses for what you do and in potential listeners on what they could potentially do here in the industrial space? Sure. Well, if anybody has any questions about industrial, I've been doing this for 40 years and I can answer the questions. People call me, I'm a member of a group called the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. And it's a group of very uh, experienced and successful industrial real estate people. A lot of them are brokers. They represent tenants. They represent, uh, companies looking to lease out or sell properties. And um, I have access through making one phone call to any industrial broker in the United States. And I use that very often, usually at least once or twice a week, I'm doing something, some kind of favor for a client or an investor of mine. What I do that's different than most of my friends who are in the multifamily space is I deal with one tenant at a time. Our buildings are single tenant and they're net leased, which means the tenant pays the taxes, the insurance, the maintenance, and the utilities. 
the management is easy and tenants sign long-term leases, five years, seven years, 10 years. So um, I've decided that, that I like to stick with what I do. I know it really well. And so I'm hyper-focused on industrial and I'm hyper-focused on the Chicago market and that's it. There's 1,300,000,000 square feet of industrial and 20,000 companies here that they're in industrial. Um, it takes a long time to break in because it's sort of like an old boys network. The brokers and the owners know each other. And if you get started, I made a call when I was a young kid to someone who was very experienced. And he said, who's this? What do you want? I don't have any slam. Right. And now I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm the old guy who has all the properties. And when the young people call me, I know that usually one out of four will make it and the other three will be gone. And it's hard to be serious with people mm -hmm. who aren't in the business quite yet. Mm -hmm. But my whole focus has become safety, safety, safety. I am into um, low debt. Sometimes I buy properties with a group of investors. I, I let like 15 investors know I found something and they put in 100,000 or 25,000. So I syndicate the deal, buy it all cash, and then we lease it to a tenant that's usually a manufacturer. And manufacturers are sticky because what they do is they put machines in and they have people working there, like 60 employees. They don't want to move because they don't want to lose their employees by moving to the other side of town. Mm. And they don't want to unhook all these machines and unscrew the bolts and move everything. It's very expensive to do. So industrial is a strange niche. Uh, I would say that overall, there's more industrial square footage in this country than retail and multifamily combined. Mm. People don't necessarily know that. And if you drive by some of these giant industrial buildings on the tollway, they're these precast buildings are 35 feet clear and they're full of companies like Amazon and Wayfair. And that's not what we do. We buy the older buildings. They're instead of precast, beautiful walls, they're bricks. They're not quite as pretty, but they're steady. Yeah. And we buy them to keep them. But the statistic is for us, every fourth building we buy is a flip within six months. Hmm. Interesting. Because, yeah, it's fascinating. The companies in the area that make products need a place to make them. It's a tool for their business. It's not really real estate to them. So they'll pay a premium of, let's say, 30% over what an investor would pay. So one story is an example. I was looking to buy a property from the gas company. It was a 40,000 foot building on a six acre site in probably the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. Mm. There's a shooting map and it shows little dots. This person died. This person just was hurt and went to the hospital. This property was there, but I knew it had value. And I did a tremendous amount of due diligence and realized that the price we were paying was fair. And I called a, an industrial broker friend of mine just to ask him a question about it as I was doing my due diligence. And he says, hey, I've got a buyer. And the buyer was a guy who is in the pork packing, packing business. He literally brings in chopped up hogs and he's got 120 guys in there chopping them up and making them into ribs and pork chops. And he needed a building in that neighborhood for a specific reason. And he came and saw it the day after I talked to this broker. And he said, I I've got to buy this. I must have it. 
And I just had a contract. I hadn't even bought it yet. I said, well, I'll sell you the contract. And he said, would you take a million and a half over your contract? I said, yeah, sure. I guess we can make that happen. Yeah. Now, it turns out that's not how it works because he did his due diligence and ended up saying to me, I can't pay anywhere near that much. <laughs> so Fair. people who do good due diligence, they're on all sides of a deal and it can hurt us and it can help us. Sure. Yeah. Did you end up selling it to them just at a lower value? We did. We did. We, we became very close friends because he got a great deal. He bought it for 600,000 more. So he calls all the time to thank me. So did for, you assign it like you would in, in single family space? It's exactly the same thing. It was an assignment. I had to get approval from the seller, which was the local gas company for the states of Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Interesting. Yeah. So I had to deal with their lawyer and I said, hey, can I assign this? And they said, no. And I said, well, then I'm not going to buy it. It took a big risk. Yeah. So they said, okay, you can assign it. So be willing to walk away is is the lesson there because you're you're taking a big risk when you say well then i gotta go right right the alternative would have been to buy it and then sell it to him after we bought it but you still would have made money but closing costs and everything else and fees and yeah yeah it's better to sell the contract mm -hmm. for sure again parallels to industrial so let's let's talk about something i found pretty cool when you now were talking briefly before yeah. which is the parallels and or differences between investing in real estate and gambling. Oh, that is my where, favorite topic. Where would you like to start? Well, um, when I was younger, I raised millions of dollars and bought dozens of buildings with debt. And I went through four separate um, downturns. And two of those downturns nearly literally put me, I would say, into um, a mental or an emotional depression because I had a lot of risk on. I had a lot of mortgages in, in 2008, which is when industrial went bad. Um, I had seven banks. I had 60 investors who had loaned me money and I thought I was rich. And then Lehman Brothers went out of business and the economy tanked. Mm -hmm. And I went from rich to being so far in debt that it felt like I was underwater and someone was holding me down and trying to drown me. And I decided that um, I was going to fight it out and not go bankrupt like a lot of my friends had. And a lot of my friends were, by the way, in residential and went bankrupt because they had too much debt as That's well. Right. And things yeah. went bad. So I fought through it and survived it. But I literally can tell you that there were days when I thought about ending my life. I thought that I had blown all of this money and that I was letting all these people down and that I, I'd have to start over after going bankrupt. And there'd be this big article in the paper, hey, Joel's in deep trouble. What a disaster. I avoided that, but I didn't avoid a depression. And what I realized after coming out of that is that I don't have the tolerance for the risk that. I was taking at that time and I had to figure out strategies to take less risk because I didn't want to end up broke. Yeah. And so I look at it this way. I think I was a real estate gambler. And I think a lot of people don't know that there's a line between investing and gambling. Mm -hmm. There's an organization that's called Gamblers Anonymous. And I have 
some very close friends who are real serious gamblers, mostly sports gamblers and casino gamblers. And I've been to the meetings and I can tell you that I fit in. When they were talking about, they, they read 20 questions, are you a gambler? And if you, if you answer yes to seven of them, you're officially a compulsive gambler. And yeah. I answered yes to more than seven of them. And I looked at it and I, I looked back at my, my career and I said, shit, I'm not an investor, I'm a gambler. And what I do now is I talk to my investors about the fact that I am not a gambler and I've given that up. And the way that you give it up is you have to do great due diligence. You have to make sure your debt makes sense. You just have to not be taking risk. You have to do everything possible not to end up back on the couch with the depression because you're underwater and someone's pushing you under with too much debt or too much risk. Yep. So I do what's called risk off. That's my, that's my philosophy. And this applies whether you're buying multifamily, one house, two houses, apartment buildings, industrial office buildings, doesn't matter. There's a book written by a guy named Kirk Kerkorian one of the richest billionaire real estate guys. He owned casinos in Vegas and, and movie studios. The title of the book is The Gambler. And he blew it all later in life when mm. it was too late and he couldn't get it back. When I say he blew it all, he, he lost maybe $8 billion and only had $2 billion left. Fair. But for, you know, it's all relative, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah. If you have 80000 and you only have 20000 left, it feels real bad. That's right. Yeah, for sure. So well, that, I think that's one of my favorite topics is that gambling issue. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of people that did that over the last two years, specifically, right? I'm I'm a part of some masterminds and some high level stuff where, uh, because I did make it through 2008, um, I took my chips off the table, risk off, uh, for the most part for the last two years, and I ended up wholesaling most of my deals that were absolutely deals. And even to my friends, and they would say, why do you keep selling these to me? I'm making 80 grand while you're making 20. Because I knew today what we're all going through was going to happen. I just, I thought it was going to happen during COVID. It didn't. And so I just said, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. At some point, we are going to have this. So I just took all my risk off the table, right? And, and I don't have uh, any risk. I mean, I'm buying rentals, but that's calculated debt to your point. I understand the interest rate versus the rental rate versus the market versus, you know, um, but I would tell you, I think in my opinion, there's always a way to spin the data to your favor. You can always go tell a private lender or someone that, Hey, this is the numbers It's going to be amazing. And that's where I think people get in a lot of trouble is when they're trying to sell the deal, the deal should essentially sell itself. Like the numbers should ring very, very true in a very low um, conservative number. I don't like taking the risk to say, once I bring it up to value, once I bring it to wherever and make it performing, um, then it will be a good deal. It should be a good deal when you buy it. Do you want to hear something really cynical? What's that? My three rules of real estate, when people ask me, what are the three rules of real estate? This is going to sound really bad, but this is what I've learned in 40 years. Everybody lies. Everybody lies. Everybody lies. And the worst lie is when you lie to yourself because you try to convince yourself that something that isn't right is right. Is right. 
And that's where you're gambling and where you're making the mistake. And so when I say to a new, a new investor, these are my three rules, they almost immediately invest with me because they say, in my business, those are the three rules also. Yeah. It's universal. It's really yeah. something how that works. And so what I'm trying to do, I think the risk off and the, the whole concept of not gambling is just not lying to yourself and knowing who you are. If you are a gambler and you're willing to lose everything, go in and say, hey, I'm going to lose everything. And you better tell your wife, because that's the other thing. When people start taking these risks, they don't tell their wife. They don't tell their, their closest people. They secretly get in trouble. And then they have to like open up and say, let me tell you what just happened. I'm so sorry. I'm in such trouble. So if you can't tell your wife and you can't tell your, your closest smart advisors what you're doing, you are gambling. There's no Period. doubt. That's the definition. It's when you lie and you take risk and you're afraid of it because you know that if you tell someone else, they're going to call bullshit on you. Yeah, it's uh, interestingly enough, as I was engaged, I went through the toughest deal that I've ever gone through. It wasn't the biggest financial loss, although it was a loss. There was so many nuances of in, like just, it was just ugly. And it was financially ugly, but also there was some personal friends involved and it just got really, really ugly. And I told her all about it while it was happening because we were engaged about to be married. This is literally like two months before we got married, right? And it was one of the greatest things I ever did because it also showed, I don't want to say loyalty as if she's like a, you know, but she just supported and she kept in my corner and she just never made it a thing and you know she kind of had that attitude like hey you're in business and you'll get through it type of thing and so it was just a, a funny how you bring that up and it definitely relates to me in the sense of like I totally could have kept it from her and that weight and that stress and that anxiety would have weighed on me and who knows how happy we are very happy and who knows if that would have actually been the case if I would have you know tunneled that down and you know everyone in this game to to finish my thought if you're in the game long enough, you've done bad deals. I don't care, you know, who you are. Um, to your point, lying to yourself is the worst part. You know, kind of finding that like, why did I do that bad deal? Oh, I forced a square peg in a round hole. I just wanted it so bad, I forced it. Or why did I do that deal? And why did I structure this or whatever? So it's something that everyone has to come to terms with if you're going to be in this game is at some point you will have a deal go bad. And you'll have to rectify it with yourself above all else. And that affects mental health. Sure. You're mentally healthy, I think, if you can be honest with yourself. And you've got to be curious. You got to ask all the right questions to make sure you make a good judgment. When you ignore asking those questions because you want to do something without being super careful about it, that causes literally, I, unfortunately, today, this is terrible. I, one of the young brokers in our Chicago industrial brokerage community uh, committed suicide on Saturday and girls oh. this week. And mental health is, is the thing. you got to stay mentally healthy. You have Absolutely. to know who you are. And if you're not a gambler, you shouldn't be gambling and you shouldn't be lying to yourself or anybody else that's close to you. I, I've got a, another really close friend who's in real trouble. His wife filed for divorce because mm. he put a second mortgage on his house to go invest in some real estate deals and he didn't tell her and then he lost mm. and then he had to tell her and she said oh my god 
like what what's our marriage if you can't tell me what you're doing i mean that's my philosophy and again i'm not going to put any judgment on anyone it's not for me or, or you or anyone to judge but i got married old enough i got married at 39 i was a late bloomer i enjoyed my 30s that's great and I just have a different perspective. I've had enough people like yourself and others that I've been able to watch during my 30s and have seen scenarios like you described. And I said, ah, I'm not going to want to do that when I'm married. I'm not going to. And so I think it's really important to, I mean, now we're talking a little bit more about marriage, but you know, just business is a marriage, right? And I think that is what we as entrepreneurs have to also realize is you have two marriages, one to your significant other, and then one to your business. And you need to have those worlds, in my opinion, collide in a good way, in a mingle in a good way. You don't have your business life in your personal life. It is one life. And I, I say that a lot. Like you have one life, right? And so you need to be able to, one way or another, uh, uh, again, I don't want to say collide as if it's opposing, but like intermingle the two. And that's important, basically about communication right? Uh, I will tell you and you maybe have gone through the season, but I've been traveling more for work than I have in a decade. Someone that I'm now at a place of influence in the space of real estate that I'm asked to be on stages, I am putting forth the best effort to uh, provide value to my current tribe, all these different things that's creating travel. So I have to be open to my wife about here's, if we want x, what I need to do to go achieve x, are these things. If you don't want X or an okay not having it, then I don't have to do these. So where does this stand? And then I can get feedback, right? Um, but all in all, it, it doesn't matter what's happening. We, we need to treat our business as a marriage and you know intermingle our actual personal marriage into it and do good business and have a good relationship because we're only here for a short amount of time. Um, so I just would echo everything you're saying there. Yeah, I think that um, living a good life is why I do real estate. I don't, I don't look at real estate as a way to make a living. I, I look at it as a way to build relationships and to make healthy decisions yeah. with people that I care about. And I know my investors and they know me. We know each other's families, or at least we know about each other's families. And I believe strongly what you just said is the most important thing in any deal or in any business. It's figuring out how to be a forgiver because everybody makes mistakes around you and you can't be this, this angry, ranting, raving person. It's very, very tough to be that way and, and maintain relationships. And other parts of relationships that matter um, really drive me to continue doing what I'm doing. If it was just for the real estate alone, I'd stop. Sure. It's about the people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a people business. Yeah. And and I love that. That's what drives my fuel. I'm a people person. But I have a podcast, get to interview great folks like yourself, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I, I think that's that is what it's all about. Well, um, to wrap up, I'd love for people to get a hold of you however they can. Where would you like them to find you? Brit Properties, B-R-I-T Properties.com. Uh, right. we have a property management business and we had a property manager named Brad. And we had to name the company. I sold my, my bigger company and ended up starting a smaller company later on. And we had to come up with a name. And Brad said, what are we going to call it? I said, it's Brit for Brad really is terrific. 
Look at that. Said, That's great. <laughs> so look at that. Properties.com. Right on. Well, Joel, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for giving some uh, love to the audience. Hopefully uh, you keep rocking. Uh, you obviously have something very special. So thank you for taking your time today. Really important to us here at the Science of Flipping. And I appreciate you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. See you.